what is one thing that every black person has in common? <laughs> Wrong. You're listening to Do Rags and Degrees. We are back, y'all, with your favorite host, Jordan. And I, it was a hard toss-up, but definitely Michelle Obama was my favorite fit at the inauguration. So shout out to her. Yes. Um, my favorite fit, and if y'all don't know who voices it, this is Carl. My favorite fit has to be Lady Gaga because she did something so bold and wore a dead bird on her dress. And... Um, <laughs> I appreciate was, don't say dead bird. We're not killing birds. It was Hunger Games, if you will. Literally. And this is Jermaine. And you know, I'm always here for a good, thoughtful fashion fit. So mine is definitely the current vice president, Kamala Harris, and her purple nod to Shirley Chisholm. Pause. If I was going to know that none of y'all about to talk about Michelle, we just not going mention everybody's favorite. I, he I just said Michelle. Michelle. I didn't even hear it. I, I need you to be present in the conversation. I'm present. So I'm with pre- that being said, Carl, what is on your mind? How are you doing? Thank you so much, Jordan. Um, I'm doing swell <laughs> in terms of the things that are going on in my world. Uh, I made some, I know I mentioned a couple episodes ago, or maybe even last episode, about how I've always came short in terms of cooking. I know we talked about that for a little bit. So I made some lasagna recently. Okay, lasagna. I know. We're talking layers. We're talking, yeah. Yeah, um, layers. Very edible. Cool. I mean, it was really, really edible. I mean, ricotta cheese, et cetera, et cetera. Shout out to my sister for giving me that recipe. Um, so I'm very much so proud about that. But No, yeah. Lasagna is a hard thing to pull off. I haven't, I haven't made a, a lasagna yet. Um, cause for one, I feel like it would just take hours and that's like not a vibe that I'm on right now. I'm just trying to like get the shit done. That it did. <laughs> Make lasagna soup next time. Dope. <laughs> no, I've heard that it's lasagna soup. <laughs> that sounds like something for transparent people to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I can do that. Not, uh... But <laughs> You know, there has been quite a few shakeups over here in my lane. Um, I quit my job last week. Congratulations. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, like that's that's like some big shit. But at the end of the day, I really was not myself in that position. I had to go ahead and like cut the cord and like take my L. So now I am job searching. I'm hashtag open to work, as the people say on LinkedIn. Uh so if you know anything in it positions that are open please i mean tell me what you're looking for what are you looking for okay oh i am looking for a position in higher education uh i really enjoy admissions as well as college advising so any you know nonprofit organizations that focus on college advising please send them my way specifically in chicago illinois that way i can be with my man okay hallelujah yeah And Jordan, how are you doing, my good sir? Who's about to miss this? I'm over it. Like, I'm going to pack it mm-hmm. up. There's just so many things and not enough time. Every time, this I've had like 6,000 to-do lists the from oh, top to bottom. I am. But one thing I am excited about is for um, student affairs. Um, we had to submit proposals for like programs to do, and my program got chosen and we are leading it we are launching it we are filming we are i just love when a good idea so i'm not sure now that it is like going through official student affairs marketing that i'm allowed to share because you know how things become oh this is top secret information no it's not top secret but it like we had to submit proposals and do all these other things so i just don't want it to but Long story short, it is basically we're doing a video series and it's called From Me to You. And we're basically just a way to engage students by sharing stories and storytelling about the pandemic, about 
other things in the world, like how you're navigating Pittsburgh while Black, all these things, so that when students see these, they're able to engage and connect with people because we can't do it in person. So that's what they asked for. That's what I'm giving them. That's and wonderful. my yeah. boss is allowing me to lead it. So like okay. literally, like anytime anybody asks about it, she sends me an email and says, can you respond to this? Which is not helpful when I have 6,000 emails in my inbox and she says, can you respond to this two times in one day? And then I tell her that I seen it and she says, okay, sorry. But I guess this is what full-time work looks like when you're only on 20 hours. Yeah. And and that's why I quit my last job. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Y'all, I took this class um, my senior year of college called You Got Me Fucked Up Professionally. And it was <laughs> classes that I've ever taken. And it talked about like how to be really quick with certain responses, like per my last email or... You know, just a little stuff there like that. There seems to be a break in communication. <laughs> but no, for real. Or like prior to that class, I didn't know the true purpose of what BCC, B, is it B, 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 BCC? BCC. Ooh, a blind carbon copy. Mm-hmm. Every trip, anytime I message, email the um, professor, I was emailing, emailing also the head of that department. Like, yep. <laughs> just so you are aware. <laughs> This is what's happening. Mm-hmm. But um, so every week, of course, y'all know we do our Get You Hip. Um, and this week was actually a bit complicated because there's so many different things that um, are happening within recent news. Um, but for this week's episode, um, considering that we're playing in the political arena for this episode, um, I want to get you hip to some groundbreaking moments of um, representation in Joe Biden's cabinet. So again, we have the first woman leading intelligent community and the entire intelligence community, the first Latino um, immigrant leading the Department of Homeland Security, and one of the largest LGBTQ plus representations in history. Um, And the one specifically I want to call attention to is Rachel Levine. Is it Levine or Levine? I believe it's Levine. Levine. I don't know. Yes, she is the first openly transgender federal official to be confirmed by the Senate. Um, What'd you say, Jay? All right now. Okay. She was instrumental in establishing the state of Pennsylvania's medical ma- marijuana program. Um, bringing na- exactly. Bringing national awareness to opioid use disorder and highlighting and promoting the need for adequate medical care and access for the LGBTQ community. Um, so for this week, her work and her policies is something that I want you all to get hip to. And for all my weed smokers, my potheads, my chief keepers, or whatever you go by, um, <laughs> alert on her policy simply because um, Joe, as of now, my dude Joe, even though you know he is a homie, he actually does not support the legalization of marijuana currently. Of course he doesn't. <laughs> but she has the potential to really change um, his entire view on this, considering um, some of the work that she's done. Um, so again, keep your eye on everything that is happening happening um, as it pertains to representation in his cabinet and the change agents that we're starting to see in our nation. Yes, that amazing. Is- ah. I live for Miss Rachel Levine. Levine. <laughs> The tree. The I think okay. I don't know. The only reason I'm gonna say Levine is because I'm thinking about Adam Levine, but it could be. Mm, Levine. I get that. I'm so excited to introduce our guest who will be engaging in this conversation with us today and blessing us with her expertise. So without further ado, I want us to welcome the host of the podcast, Black Girls Talk Back, Jordan Fields. But before we hear from Jordan, I want 
to us to give her her flowers. So Jordan Fields serves as a policy coordinator in the Office of Equity in the city of Pittsburgh. She's a 2020 graduate of the University of Pittsburgh, where she was a varsity student athlete, president of the Mu chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, and is an active member of the Pitt community and the 2020 Omicron Delta Kappa Senior of the Year. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you. How are you today? I'm doing well. That was, thank you. That was, wow. It's so weird to like hear all those things now because I feel like we're removed from undergrad and like I got thrown into the real world, but that was, wow. Don't think it's so ghetto. No, it is. It is like, I, mm mm-mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) So, okay, so I'm interested. Can you give us like, just like the title, like policy coordinator in the Office of Equity sounds like beautiful. So like, can you just give us like a quick rundown before we hop into the conversation, like about like what that is that you do? Sure. So um, when people ask about what I do, I oftentimes tell them like, I do a lot of writing, um, whether it's memos, legislation, uh, letters of support and recommendation. My work um, first and foremost focuses on like a few specific areas. So like housing policy, food policy, um, and then kind of like general equity issues or whatever comes our way. Um, So I currently manage the housing assistance resource portal, which is like a one-stop shop for housing assistance for city residents. I helped uh, get the Crown Act passed in Pittsburgh, which is like a super big win. It banned natural hair discrimination in the city. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, I attend a lot of other meetings pertaining to housing policy and how we can create more equitable policies and practices in in the city and just make Pittsburgh Pittsburgh more livable overall. yeah, that's like... Ain't that a word? Yeah. <laughs> and I know that's a hard job. I know it uh, is. You know, it, it definitely is, but my coworkers are truly, like, amazing. And so we oftentimes bounce ideas off each other, and it's very easy to work with the people that I work with. I love it. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, so, um, you know there's a reason why we have Jordan here tonight. Um, Obviously she is very well versed in the area of policy, politics in general and things of that nature. So we're gonna go ahead and hop into the main discussion for tonight. Um, And so before we start, I will say um, as black people, we have quite the hard time living without engaging in politics. The laws, funding decisions and elected officials impact the black community in a very real way, plainly, Black people do not really have the privilege to disengage from politics as often as some other communities do. And therein lies the importance in not only being politically engaged, but politically aware of the times and the things that are going on. So that's the point of this discussion. So in the weeks since the inauguration, it's been about two at this point, at the point in which we're recording this episode, um, President Biden has pushed a total of 44 executive orders which by definition are produced by the president as the head of the executive branch, and they are generally directed to and govern actions by government officials and agencies. So these executive orders or EOs range in topic from healthcare, equity, COVID-19, immigration, environmental issues, just like all types of different stuff. Um, Also, fun fact, 19 of these 44 orders are reversals of Trump era policies, which I thought was really interesting because like almost half is just erasing the shit that Trump did. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Just interesting. <laughs> Never mind. So this episode, we're going to talk about how these executive orders impact our community, if at all, and then what exactly the government should be doing for us as, as Black people. So first, we're going to just hop on some EOs uh, based on the list that was like read up. So are there any ones that based on the COVID-19, which there are 15 executive orders, so the most out of anyone, um, out of any topic, which of these like 15 coronavirus orders kind of stuck out to y'all? 
I can personally say um, one that's interesting to me is um, the one that directs the Department of Education um, and HHS to provide guidance for school reopenings. Um, a lot of school districts across the country um, in both cities and suburban communities are really trying to figure out how to get kids back in school um, because they know that with kids learning at home, um, there's a serious digital divide affecting, again, Black children worse than um, a lot of their peers. And so reopening schools is, is going to be really interesting to watch. Um, I don't know whether schools are going to require that kids get vaccinated. I don't know what schools' plans are or if states are going to be in charge of developing those plans. But um, I think it'll be interesting to watch those two departments um, in particular kind of work through that together. I, that was one, I have like a lot of like pieces of that copy and paste because I found like the PDFs of the executive orders. I don't know where I found them, but I found them. And I thought it was very interesting the explicit language that was used. First and foremost, that he tasked the Office of Civil Rights um, to deliver a report that specifically details the impacts of COVID-19 and it has to be disaggregated by like race, English language learner status and things like that. So I thought that that was really important, but he even, they even, I shouldn't say he, cause he wasn't the only one that crafted these, but it's his executive order. They specifically outlined that it has to also, all these things have to include minority serving institutions, HBCUs, um, tribal college and universities, Hispanic serving institutions. Cause those words, that words are important because if he didn't include those, somebody would probably be like, well, you didn't say that. And I'm glad he did. And I will also add, I think that the thing about bringing students back to school that scares me the most, and I think it's also the main thing that um, educators and you know school boards or whatnot are dealing with is the fact that like the digital divide is real. And that is a very, very like true thing, but also is it worth it to put students back in school and then like jeopardize their health for classes? Ah, you know, and like, that's where like, I have troubles because if we're gonna do things to, to move forward students back, being back in classes, then like, is there like, I think, I think it was Jordan, like, are we gonna have them vaccinated? Do the schools have enough money to hang up actual dividers and not shower curtains? Just you know, shit like that, that needs to also happen for people to go back to school in a safe way. They doing shower curtains? <laughs> they were. Shower curtains. <laughs> yes, it was hanging up shower curtains and posing them off as dividers because there was no money. So. Wow. Sponsor a divider. That needs to be the next, the next challenge. Wow. <laughs> Hashtag 100-day masking challenge. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But to add to that point before we move on, there's two things I want to say. Did you see that article about the Chicago teacher? Yes. Who was, refu they refused to let him work from home. So he, in the snow, was teaching outside of the school. Mm -hmm. So I'm with you on that, Jermaine, that it's not equitable to move these students, or equitable or safe to move these students back into the schools because it's disproportionately affecting black and brown students. But then you have areas where there is no choice and he just wants a space where he's not gonna be able to catch it. But if you read the executive order, this is my second and last point, the Federal Commission, Communications Commission is encouraged to increase connectivity options. They don't have to. So that's important because if they don't have to uh, comply with like making sure that students have connectivity. So while I would love for them to be able to do it all virtually, we're not sure when they're gonna ax the connection to Xfinity or AT&T or whatever it is. That's like a hot take the idea of like a direction because in a way, I feel like a lot of these executive orders are just like suggestions to things that should happen. And like, that's why I like, you know, I, I found the definition of an executive order really for me 
because I didn't really exactly know what it was. And then like it really kind of brought into, into perspective how the executive orders are really just things that the president can do like for the executive branch of the government. Mm-hmm. And like it doesn't really like stretch too far away from that. So like a lot of these can easily be checks and balances, like they can easily be erased just as quick as they were put put in. Great point. That, yeah, that's a great point. And I'm I'm gonna pivot sort of out of COVID-19 for a second, because where you brought up a great point where it doesn't necessarily extend outside of the executive branch, but then it breaks it down when talking about the reversal of the gender or sexual orientation um, discrimination in the workplace. There's this word that is used that says agency. And then if you like, there was this link in the PDF, if you click on it, it defines agency. And the word agency doesn't include the governments of DC and the territories of the possessions of the United States. So that reversal doesn't apply to Puerto Rico, doesn't apply to the governments in DC. So what about those people that are being discriminated against for gender or sexual orientation? Like what does this executive order then do? And are we supposed to be happy about it? Mm. It's just like somebody's always getting left out. Yeah. And that's that's what a lot of people don't realize about lawmaking is that, or politics in general, it's all about compromise. So oftentimes when legislation is passed, because bills are so long, people don't always read through them and they don't realize that there are things thrown in that have absolutely nothing to do with the primary focus of the piece of legislation. So that's, yeah, so oftentimes people do get left out or somebody kind of gets screwed over because it's about compromise, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And like, how long is it going to take for DC to become a state? Is that in conversation? Is that what September, talking? spring, summer? <laughs> <laughs> Jordan, please. I just had to. I wasn't going to say it, but <laughs> no, because I remember, like, I saw this tweet. It was like. <laughs> There are more people in D.C. than in, like, some of the states, like, in, like, the Great Plains. I think it was, like, fucking, like, Wisconsin or, like, Iowa or some shit. And, like, Wyoming type, all that, all that shit. They're, like, there's, like, 500,000, 600,000 people in the whole state. And that's the same amount of people that live in D.C. And they're, like, not, they don't have senators. They are not a state. Like, a lot of the stuff, like, the rules sometimes don't apply to them. And it's, like why and it, I, I remember um I have a friend who lives in DC who's like very like a really really active activist like was out there on the beaten path and she would just like post these videos of how the the police force there was just treating the protesters just terribly wrong and in a way like it was lawful because a lot of the the things that apply to other cities and states do not then apply to DC because it is not a state Sips wine. I'm weak. Yeah, I'm sure. I don't know. I think that they don't teach you in government. (laughs) I think that there is definitely, um, I think somebody actually mentioned something to this nature, but like, I think that there is definitely a question of um, how serious we're still taking um, this pandemic to be. Um, And I mean, I think that something that kind of made me uncomfortable is like the continuous verbiage in, in these different executive orders and how it references. Because I think that we, some, I think Jordan, you mentioned like the 100, the 100 day challenge or the 100 mass challenge. The fact that, that they are even latching on to a, a challenge because challenges are trending, to me, that is almost um, really diminishing the severity of COVID as in and of itself, you know, like, I think that by even associating it to be like, oh yeah, let's just do like this little challenge real quick, just because it's trending. That's almost like not understanding it to be something that's really like taking out niggas lives out here, you know, but 
not to say that they aren't doing work towards, um, you know, making sure that we end this pandemic, but um, I definitely question whether um, these are the correct tactics to do so. But. So off that, I definitely feel like taking the um, route of a challenge is definitely like an issue because of the wording, but there is now, and a lot of airlines are sending out these emails because this was a part of one of the mandates, whereas international travelers must provide proof of a negative COVID test prior to coming to the US. And some are even requiring it like to, like when you get off the plane. So I think that's important because people were going in and out of airports when all of this started and there was no uh, temperature checks. There was no, how are you feeling? It was just like, you got it off, got off the airplane and you went about your day and hugged and kissed the person that was picking you up. So I'm glad to see that that's now in place. I didn't even know that. I thought that they actually were taking checking temperatures at airports. Not the P uh, Pittsburgh International. No, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Oh. <laughs> they say come as you are <laughs> like but for real getting, I'm sorry people were getting positive results as when they landed like finding out that they tested positive on the plane mm -hmm. which is a mess like what do you do <laughs> nothing like, you I, have to sit there is it like Monsters Inc. when the person gets attacked with the sock? Like, I'm just trying to figure that out. Like, and if you felt like you needed to get tested, why did you then get on the plane? And this is why mandate versus challenge is very, very important. I'm mandating you if you're traveling from Turks and Caicos back to the U.S. when you should have never left the U.S. in the first place. But that's a whole nother thing. But you're breaking my rights because I feel like I <laughs> Mass, and I can come and spend my good, hard-owned American dream money here, and I shouldn't have to do whatever you're telling me to do. It's funny because I went into, I actually like sit outside of a Whole Foods while there was this whole ordeal going on with this lady who didn't want to wear a mask and how she pretty much was saying like it's her right to shop there if she's spending her money, she doesn't have to wear a mask, like. And the dude was just like, it's our policy. And she was just like, but it's not lawful. Whole nine yard. It's a shame. See, now that's that shit that be pissing me off because the people don't realize that there's a difference between the private sector and the public sector. These agencies can do whatever the fuck they want to do. If they want to kick you out of their business because it's private, they can fucking mm -hmm. do that. Like, girl, I, ugh. Ah. And I also want to make note in a lot of the places that I've been, a lot of the places that, that I've been, and I, I'll come across a person not wearing a mask. Let's, let's just take a, take a poll and just take a guess about what two identities this person <laughs> who is not wearing a mask holds. Go ahead. I want to hear from, from everybody. Go, go for it. They might support our most recent, our past president. Mm -hmm. um, that might be one. They might not be of color, since that's what they call us. Um, but that—that's the only two <laughs> populations I can really think of. Jordan, I was gonna say something crazy. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna flat out say white women because <laughs> let me to end. Hmm, how do I put this? Throughout history, I think because women are an oppressed group of people, I think we downgrade how much they oppress and harm other groups of people. But white women, let me tell you, white women will test you. They will test you and they know just how to weaponize their gender mm -hmm. and emotions yeah. to the point where they can flip the entire situation and make themselves a victim. And I have, I, mm -hmm. I can't do it. I can't do it. Okay, because we're gonna have to dog walk real quick because yeah. the, <laughs> the fact of the matter, and that, that's why the, um, the idea of like white tears like gets me to such like a really, really, really like angry place 
because when somebody like weaponizes their emotions that is a very like real thing that a lot of people are not able to do and then like immediately like once a white woman starts crying everybody's like goes to like comfort her and boop-de-boo, even like when the thing <laughs> is like her fault and then yes. everybody's like it's like it's okay no like i understand like no fuck that she's is the one that caused this okay yeah so now are we going to talk about the amount of white women that are over diversity and inclusion type of programs? Stop, stop, stop. I'm, I'm about to end so, this video. I, I do want to tap into that really fast because I was in a meeting, I'm not naming anybody. I've only been to one institution, so you'll get it soon. <laughs> um, where I said to somebody, I, I said, it's a problem that we have a white woman as well had, because she had then quit, over diversity, equity, inclusion. And this woman, this black woman said, why? I said, thank you, and I left. Because I'm just like, I don't understand which part you don't get. And uh, as soon as the white woman becomes emotional, she is at sometimes worse than their spouses. I've always said that behind every strong man is a strong woman these women knew exactly what these men were doing and let them do it let's talk about uh nancy reagan and mr ronald reagan for a while because (laughs) (laughs) i just a few first ladies not just nancy Mm -hmm. quite a few a few quite a few And I think, you know, to kind of like bring us back to these executive orders, I think that that's an important, like, just, it's very important because there's another executive order about racial equity. But let's like, I got to find the executive order really fast. But if, and reading the racial equity report, he, like, I mean, not report, uh, executive order, there's a lot of like people of color um, American Dream, um, all these things that do not offer themselves, like he's using Bud's words, like civil rights, racial justice, inequality, which we know is not equity, which we know doesn't get us to equity, underserved populations, but never does he really explicitly say Black, Latinx. He, he lists it after in definitions, but never like explicitly says like, these are the things affecting these people, X, Y, Z. One, two, three. So to lend that to the conversation, it's like, we're happy that we're doing the, um, he's doing the work, but how do we then, and should we, which I believe we should critique his work and how do we do that? On one hand, I understand on one hand it's bullshit. Like in terms, and and the reason I say I understand, I say that very, very lightly. Um, I work with a group of, predominantly white women who um, are open to, like they take anti-racism classes and they're open They're open to understanding their, their privilege on a deeper level. Um, and so I had to have a deep conversation with them on like just referring to me as black and understanding that that in and of itself is not a curse word, it's not offensive, but it's what I identify as. Um, so I think a part of it is their attempt to be inclusive to everyone. But in the attempt to do that, you also leave out communities in and of itself. Like, um, and I think that in terms of different legislation, I think that it is a need to start becoming specific with who the individuals, what are the communities that you're referring to. Um, But yeah, that's all I feel. Jordan? Yeah, I mean, that was perfectly stated. And I think it's hard to, as we were talking about, like, the real impact of executive orders earlier, I think it's hard to do racial equity work at the federal level if it's not very specific. So when you're passing an executive order that's not really, like you said, mandating anything and instead kind of like, acknowledging and addressing um, historical issues that we already know exist. If you're not 
creating policies, right, to, to advance racial equity, if you're not deconstructing practices that have historically harmed people, then like, you're probably not gonna get far because a lot of people aren't willing to do the anti-racism work on their own. Um, and then also, I know that there was a report that was released recently about how people who are buying like specific anti-racist books, like how to be anti-racist, all, all of the, yeah, Jordan's face, they're returning them. Like they're returning the books. Oh. Like they're not reading them, they're returning them and trying to get their money back. So not, it, it was just like, it, them wanting to not be racist was just like a, a long, yeah, it was just like a week long. Actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're returning books, they're not doing the work. So like, if people aren't even willing to do the work at the individual level, institutionally, I'm not sure that the change is actually gonna happen no matter what type of like executive order or piece of legislation you pass because people don't wanna stop being racist. Like, right. they're returning the books. <laughs> Just in case you didn't hear, they are taking the books back they were sold out in the Barnes and Noble, and now those same books will be back on the shelves, untouched, unread, sold unopened. Out. I think that's the part that gets me is that they were sold out. Like, yeah. if it was a book that I didn't read yet, like, and that I wanted to read, it was sold out to the point where, like, the people that want to do the work are not going to do the work. And I think that it, it or, excuse me, can't do the work or learn more about the work because of the people that then were trying to be performative. And I think it's exceptionally critical to critique the Biden administration simply because he won by the hair on his chinny chin chin. So he only has four years. I'm not, I'm talking about electoral college vote. We're not talking about popular vote, popular vote. I was about to say, that was like 15, 10 million. I was like, oh, hold on. Yeah, but as we've seen in 2016, as we've seen in 2016, it does not matter about popular vote, which is a whole nother conversation for another day. But when we're talking about the Electoral College, it's just the fact that in four years, people might not feel the same about Biden, might not be hopeful about Kamala. And if we do not put pressure and apply pressure for him to follow through, because they're already on Twitter, like, Biden, where's my stimmy? Biden. Where my student loans still say this. And it's only been what? What's it's it's been less than a month. So in two years, hopefully we're out of this pandemic. I mean, according to the weekend, he's going on tour in 2022. So <laughs> we'll be out of the pandemic in 2022. But I, I think that we have to urge people to be critical, to be civically engaged, to think about dismantling the system because if we don't we're going to be in the same boat with another superstar or reality tv star running for the executive branch can i say something like i'll go ahead what'd you say i was gonna say for the third time that'll be the third hollywood star that we would have elected to the highest office in our goddamn country and embarrassing but i was gonna say real quick not the pulling the inauguration but the pulling the inauguration i feel like there was this secret group of people that were including me who were like praying that nothing terrible happened to biden on that day number one by terrible like assassination i got literally it was a couple times where he turned and i was like please don't let nobody be trying to like Mm. get at my get at my dude or nothing but i also think there is this group of people that are like low key. I'm not gonna say waiting on him to something terrible happens to him. I didn't want to say it, but you did. Um, just so that Kamala could just go up the ranks, and I, <laughs> I think that that's so gruesome to like mm-hmm. secretly be like, you know, wanting that to happen. But I think that that is what has become popular, just nobody want to say that. Um, Jordan, what was you about to say? So I've seen the tweets. I've seen the, like, you know, go ahead and log out for me, Joe. All that. (laughs) But it's to the point of life. (laughs) Okay. But I just, like, 
I think people have to be very careful because again, it's not, I think people have to be very careful because it's important to note that like, just because this person comes from, it, it was a part of this administration, this was her agenda at the time as vice president, her agenda as president could change. And we're supporting her, but we also know where she has come from and her views have changed, which is important. But we need also to critique that. So while we're just like, oh, let's open the door for Kamala to be there. Like, we're not sure what kind of can of worms that's gonna open in the pushback as a black woman, as an Asian American woman, then she will then get just for simply being those two intersecting identities and then having to interact with the Senate and Congress and the judicial branch. So it'll be a mess. Yeah, and I do know that she did um, vote against the $2,000 um, for the stimulus check. <laughs> so, she sure did. <laughs> and this is the first year I can claim myself. So I'm not with that. <laughs> I think there's also a conversation that is to be had about how like identity politics govern, how people think that politicians politic. Because mm. I, I think that there was a lot of false hope placed on some of our other black politicians, namely former president Barack Obama, uh, based on what we thought he was gonna do just because he was black. But in reality, he was a center left politician, the same as Biden, the same as Kamala. And like those things, like people like erase, like how, you know, the political spectrum works just because a person looks like you. And I think that is a reason why we have so many like false hopes and false expectations because people don't realize that just because they black don't mean that they trying to like, you know, do whatever you think is like the best, like for niggas specifically, like that's <laughs> not how that works. Yeah. I also seen a um, good post and this will be my last comment, um, thinking about I mean, it wasn't a post. It was somebody said it on Instagram. I'm not going to share their name simply because I'm not sure, but I, I'm acknowledging that I am citing him and this was his idea. Um, the Thinking about the, the two people that were in the two of the most highest office and their proximity to whiteness and how they were then allowed to be within the executive branch. And I thought that was a very interesting thing because we don't necessarily, they're, while they are descendants of slaves and, and they enslaved, excuse me, in some particular fashion, they do have a mixed identity that then has allowed them to be white passing or closer to white passing. So what would it mean for somebody that is a descendant specifically of African slaves with no mixed identity to be in the White House? That's, 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 with, I just, I was listening to an interview with um, Shem Amanda, I think her name is about how she doesn't know if Barack would have gotten into office if Michelle had like kinky hair or curly hair. Um, so I think that even that plays a role, you know? That's mm, all of this. So the thing about Michelle, she, if have y'all seen the Becoming documentary on Netflix? Oh yes, of course. A lot of what they explore is about how she had to change despite her having pretty much the same credentials as her husband, like her image really had to change in order to fit what Americans would perceive as a, a, a quality first lady. And I think it's no coincidence that she dresses a certain way, she styles her hair a certain way, because America is very critical of people in those two offices. Now, I absolutely think that both Barack and Kamala Harris being mixed people had everything to do with their ability to get to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I think if Kamala Harris was a darker skinned black woman, if she didn't have straight hair, if she had different features and she acted the same way that she did on the debate stage, the reaction from the country would have been vastly different people would not have been cheering her on for clapping back at people. People would have said she had an attitude. I mean, they already did, but we know that it would have been even more racially charged because of the colorism, the hate that black women already get. Um, and so I think as for specifically white voters who voted for 
both um, the Biden-Harris ticket and uh, the Obama-Biden ticket, I think that they were, <clears throat> damn, they were able to, to accept them more because they realized that they weren't fully Black and they were closer to white than some other candidates have been. Um, and I don't know, I mean, when was the last time a Black woman ran, oh, I can't remember her name. Shirley. No, it was uh, Carol Mosley Braun, first female uh, senator. Um, she ran in 2004 um, and dropped out early, but like she was 100% black. I'm not sure if she ran today that she get the support that Kamala got. And I think even if it's not intentional, subconsciously people are able to digest people of mixed identities, especially in the political world more than they are um, fully black or darker skinned black people because of their proximity to whiteness. Mm -hmm. And mm, yeah, that's, I, it has, I think it has everything to do with it for sure. Um, and I also feel like, I don't know, I definitely feel like there were moments where along the campaign trail, I mean, Kamala Harris definitely had to like hold back a bit because she knew that she was like, if she was even a bit more black, people would have been like, wait, never mind. We don't like her as much. Like, we don't, just kidding, just kidding. Like, we'll just go with Bernie. Like, it's okay. But um, yeah, that's a great point. And I think people really do need to talk about it because, again, representation is important, but to an extent. Um, and so I think even still overemphasizing and prioritizing mixed people and, and black people with lighter skin, you know, you're excluding a whole large group of people in this country um, and their needs and, and issues that they face uh, as people with their specific identity won't be addressed. So, yeah. so I wanna like ask you, Jordan, like how, and this, this is gonna be like a, a weird question to answer like I'm going to say it off the bat but like how like much like time or how much work do you think needs to be done until we get to a place where this is not an issue anymore we're <laughs> no this is such a shitty question but how long how much work do you have to go to do until colorism is not a thing basically is what I'm asking like what is there like what is left Phew. That's a, that's such a tough question because colorism has always plagued the black community in America, but also what this country looks like is constantly changing. So we know by like what, it's like 2050, the actual color of people, like people's skin is gonna be different. People, like we're not gonna see as many darker skin and, and brown skin people. And so I think I don't want to say that color is it like I think color colorism will still be a prevalent issue, but I don't know that in 50 years we're all gonna look the same. Like our generation eventually is gonna die off and we're like people are like the country is literally gonna look different. Mm -hmm. Um we know that there won't be white people won't be the majority. But I don't I don't know, like it's it's gonna take lifetimes to actually get rid of a lot of these issues, but it also takes like individual work. So if people aren't unlearning all of the BS that they learned growing up, then it'll be around forever still. And I think it'll still be ingrained, like not necessarily within people, but within institutions, like within in what people are reading and what people are witnessing on TV, like colorism is a part of all of that. And so I think it'll take a while for people to kind of just like, wipe it clean off the table because it's so deeply ingrained in every American institution that exists. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes, like, it's, it's always been here. Like, it's just so. Yeah, no, I heard you loud and clear. I don't know about the rest of these mugs, <laughs> but my ears are open. <laughs> uh, I I'm right there with you. And I, I to kind of like expand off your first point, like let's not forget that Kamala was running for the president of the United States and nobody was backing her. Mm -hmm. 
Nobody was interested. Then she endorsed Joe Biden. She attached herself to this white man. And it was like, oh, that's my short war. Let's do this. Da, 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 da. And it's like, where were we all at? In 2019, we weren't, we weren't on Bravo. We weren't on BET. We weren't on the street. We weren't doing none of that. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, we attached it to this white man and it was okay. But I think, I'm sorry, I don't know if it was still going, but I do think that that is not only white people who are like, you need to be close to whiteness to be considered for presidential office. But I also think that it is black people thinking that um, they will, we will never be allowed, like they would never allow a black woman to get to that place. Cause I think that even some uh, barbershop the talk that I've, that I've seen. That's a different story. But there was this notion of, um, I am going to now support Joe Biden, who was backed by Kamala, because I know that Kamala wouldn't have made it on her own. So it made no sense for me to support her. So that's a whole other perspective on it. And and I could also like speak to that from exactly where I was. Um, So like in the primaries, you know, not gonna lie, I was for Mrs. Elizabeth Warren all day all night i love me some liz so when she had to drop out and it was just like bernie and then joe going back and forth i was like okay like okay like bernie and then like the the mecca of it all like the the organizational head of the dnc iced him out we know how that happened so then we only had joe and we had to be okay with joe so i was like okay like whatever so then once like Kamala was added to that, I was like, I was like, okay, okay. Like, you know, it's Joe and Kamala. So like the reason, like I was not at all excited for Joe, but then it was like Joe like and Kamala. So the idea of having a black woman in that space was kind of what pushed me to more or less accept mm-hmm. how that was gonna go. Cause the celebration was for Kamala. Like I never seen so many like, Congratulations to the new Madam Vice President. And I'm like, my nigga Joe here too. Y'all know what it's like. <laughs> we didn't care then and we didn't care now. Really. I also think we can, you know, in interest of time, but I also think it's interesting how Joe Biden attaches himself to black people. Yes. <laughs> like nobody's talking about that though. Like he was attached to Obama and he like he sees these people as a ticket to get to where he needs to go. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's interesting. But I, I think that this conversation can lend itself to be for hours, like this conversation, because there's so many pieces, whether it's equity, whether it's this, um, but in just the interest of everything, I really just wanna say thank you for being here. Um, I think it's important. I do want to just say also thank you from uh, somebody who's from Pittsburgh for doing the work in this Office of Equity in the city of Pittsburgh because we know that it's not livable for Black women. So you putting yourself at the forefront is also very important. So thank you for sharing and like helping us wrap us help our heads around this. Thank you. Thank you. This is so fun. So like I told y'all, Jordan was the shit, is the shit, and will forever be the shit. So hopefully we have her back one day. But for right now, we have to move on to this week's Black Blasphemy. And we're going to keep it political. However, we're moving from executive orders to figuring out if Kamala's Vogue, Kamala, excuse me, Vogue's cover was in order. Now, overall, who said they love these chucks? Honey, it was me. I love the look. I love the look because, you know, like my, I I like to like characterize my style as the really like happy medium between like, like smart casual and like business, like formal ish kind of there. So anytime you can take like a look and like 
like add jeans to it or like add like chucks to it and it still looks like you can like show up to work like this i live for that because i hate i hate suits and slacks and shit and i don't think that they impact your work ethic and how you like you know like the the type of work that you put out so seeing like the second highest office in our, our nation seeing that person wear chucks and like wear relaxed clothes while she is running the fuck out of the senate I think it's a great look. I see what you did there with the whole running thing. That was really cute. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think that it it supports this new trend towards no longer being politically correct, which is happening in all aspects of of culture. Even like on TikToks, people, you know, politicians being able to really take their messaging down to a level that is digestible to all different communities. Um, making people a bit more personable. And I think that that was her tactic, really using, um, number one, I think that it really was her thing because she just wanted to be comfortable, but another part of it was making her become approachable. Um, So I have to unfortunately say, I am not a friend of Chuck's as it is. I understand your perspective in terms of where your happy medium is in terms of fashion and I see that. And that's the case that I, I think that that's also what I do in terms of Chelsea boots. Like you can really make a Chelsea boot for like all occasions, but I think that Chucks are ugly, unfortunately. And um, I used to unfortunately own a a good amount of Chucks, Um, but it's something that gives me very much so if I step on a nail, my toe will stick out at the bottom of it, that I don't really care for Chucks as it is, but. Wow. I'm sorry. Jory, how do you feel about it? So I don't think Chucks were the right fit, not for the Vogue cover or for the, just the, um, in general. I would have preferred it for it to be a different type of shoe and maybe I could have gotten along with it. But I think the Chucks just kind of, it went immediately to a college party with someone who has those white chucks on that are very dirty like that's just kind of what I envisioned even though her chucks were look always very clean always very nice it just always threw me back to the way people dog chucks and the way they look before you get them and after you get them so I wish it would have just been a different pair of shoes to kind of like bring the outfit together yeah but, well you know thank god that you aren't the one <laughs> wearing the chucks huh amen amen <laughs> and it don't and don't okay but my thing is she really could have like we should have gave her like some Tim Heels if she wanted to look. Not like Tim Heels. Where is she from? Cook County. <laughs> not, not Tim Heels. But I. But that is like something that like maybe she was being true to herself, and it wasn't like because when you typically think about somebody being in either a magazine or uh, the vice president, like did where I guess we're so used to a stylist that maybe there was no stylist input. This is, I'm showing up as me. I'm not being rude about it. The suit was very nice. (laughs) But no, 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 there's no shade. I'm just simply saying like, she was styled from head to kneecap. (laughs) Jordan! I'm not being rude about it, but her style is incomplete. Because, okay, so here's, but this is the the last thing I'll say about this. My thing with style and fashion, and I will remind you all, I have a degree in fashion. Okay. I will say that the reason why fashion is such a, uh, is very subjective. Anybody's fashion is their fashion. So like when it comes to like wearing clothes to feel good and like enjoy how you look, I think like from my point of view, like that it's up to the person who is wearing it. So fashion is in the eye of the beholder. So if that's her fashion, then period pool, that's your fashion. Mike drop. And, that, and that's why I said she was being true to herself. Mm-hmm. Well, y'all, unfortunately, it is that time to go ahead and wrap it up and fasten it for all the listeners out there, please continue to share this with your family, friends, and anyone else who enjoys podcasts that discuss the fun and critical shit that we do. Again, if you would like to give your perspective on a topic that we have slated for 2021 or feel free 
uh, to just contact us at do rags and degrees pod via social. We really want to hear what y'all think. We want to hear what y'all want to hear us talk about. So feel free to always reach out. And we have so, so, so much in store for y'all. So stay tuned. And until then, be sure to follow, subscribe, and rate on all your favorite streaming platforms. And we will catch y'all, say it with me, next Wednesday. I'm sorry. Next Wednesday. Got you. <laughs> y'all don't be listening. Y'all don't listen to me ever. I got you next time, I promise. <laughs> As always. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in and continue to be civically engaged and challenge those systems. Catch you next week. After next. Bye. Adios.